Joshua Brandstetter's family moved to Alaska in the early 90s. His father was in the military, stationed in Adak. After the base closed down and his dad retired, the family moved to Anchorage. Once they settled in, they looked around for a church, and in 1994, they found Anchorage Baptist Temple. Years later, when Joshua was going to high school, he was enrolled in Anchorage Christian School, a private institution run by ABT. He graduated in 2005. Earlier this summer, a group of alumni from Anchorage Christian Schools connected through social media over shared experiences that they had during their time there. With the help of an open letter from former Miss Alaska, Ariane Adet, over 120 black indigenous people of color have shared their stories. Decades of racial discrimination and abuse they are victim to while attending ACS and ABT. Joshua is one of the alumni speaking out. This is Zoom Room from Alaska Team Media Institute, a youth-produced podcast where each episode we zoom into different themes or topics through interviews and conversations relevant to us, the youth of Alaska. I'm your host, Cornelius Nelson. Joshua Brandstetter is a filmmaker and photographer based in Anchorage. In 2020, he was a recipient of a Rasmussen Foundation Fellowship for his work with Absolute Zero, an art and documentary project creating a voice for survivors of abuse throughout Alaska. I've met Joshua a few times actually through the Atme staff. Recently, we've been seeing each other at the local Black Lives Matter protests in town, where he's been taking pictures to document this moment in time. We spoke over Zoom on July 28th, 2020, about how his experience at ACS has shaped him into a filmmaker, activist, parent, and a person. Also, just so you know, during the interview, I'm going to say alumni. I don't mean alumni. I mean alumni. I'm bad at English. It's not my second language. I'm just bad at it. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I hope you enjoy the story. I personally never actually went to ACS for school, but I had friends that went there and um, they didn't really have a good time there because they were Alaskan native. Uh, they were Denina Athabaskan. And so for them, it wasn't all that great. What was your experience there like? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was all bad. I mean, they had a theater program, and that was, that was probably the thing that got me through everything. I loved the theater program, which started when I was a sophomore. Um, I will say, though, that when I went to ACS, when I started going to ACS, I was, I was a freshman. And I think probably the best way to put it, this, and this is what I've, I've said before, is that my mom is Filipino and my dad is white. Ever since I was a kid, I loved movies and I would watch movies all the time. I'd always watch a movie before bed. I, of course, loved the same thing any kid my age would love. I loved uh, Star Wars and Indiana Jones and all that. And I watched The Great Escape every time it was on TBS. Um, but the one thing is the heroes in those movies that I always wanted to be like, they were always white. Um, these white chiseled jawed guys and they had a uh, blue eyes and blonde or brunette hair and they had thin lips and I wanted to be like them but I, di I didn't look anything like them I was this tan little Filipino kid with a big head of curly hair one day I decided that hey I, one thing they all have is thin lips so I need to have thin lips I need to tan less I need to look more like that. I want to be like that. And so I would pull in my lips because I have Filipino lips like my mom, but, but I would pull it in because I wanted to have Harrison Ford lips. And that's when I was a kid. I think I was like eight or 10 when I decided to do that. And I would purposefully do that. So by the time I was a teenager and still today, I, I still pull in my lips. I do it out of reflex it's just um something i conditioned myself to do when i went to acs there were perceptions i had of myself it was better to not tan it was better to have thin lips it was better to not speak to not learn my language it was better to be whiter i never learned my language i still don't know my language tagalog i don't i don't speak it and when i went to acs i 
went into an environment that reinforced what I already thought about myself, that it wasn't cool to look like me, that I couldn't be the hero, that I could be the sidekick, I could be the brunt of the joke. And my value was to fit in with the white kids, to be complicit, to be the good Asian, and try to be more like them instead of more like who I am. That's what it was like living at ACS. Thank you for sharing with me. I kind of figured you're Filipino because of the nose. My dad's Filipino and black, <laughs> and my mom's white and Athabascan. So I was like, all right, you're definitely not just white. You might be Mexican. <laughs> Maybe. I'm not 100%. But um, how exactly have you and the fellow ABT and ACS alumni and former goers, how did you put together all of this where you're all speaking out? Because it's it's been such a booming voice, and it's just – come up and it's never been touched on before so how'd you guys put it all together this all happened because a former faculty member had posted something that i don't know if they meant it this way but either way the facebook post ended up turning into a thread of so much denigrating and just deriding anyone standing for the black lives movement anyone saying hey yeah there is a systemic problem here but aside from that there's a big problem just systemically everywhere and we need to fight for justice for george floyd but we also need to change and reform our educational structures and we need to reform our law enforcement we need to examine everything and it basically turned into a lot of former faculty members dismissing people were saying dismissing that cause and then in turn <laughs> ACS alumni saying yeah that sounds that's what we heard when we were going to school there it's like of course you'd say that I remember what you called us and people just started pouring in it was mostly a lot of what I saw were white students who went there and was like I remember hearing how minorities were treated and I didn't, I didn't comment on that post, but it got brought to my attention. I was like, oh, well, I guess all of that's coming to the surface now. I guess we're going to have that conversation. And um, I remember someone brought it to my attention and they were like, hey, you should, you, you're always talking about what it was like over there. You should reach out to Melina, Melina Kay is what they said, because she was one of the people that we saw talking there and really bringing up some good points. And so I reached out to her and I was like, hey, um, we don't know each other, but I'm also an ACS alumni. And I remember so many of these experiences. I remember the names I was called. I remember how the teachers thought it was funny and how you really couldn't, didn't have anyone to bring up problems to about this, no one to complain to, because no one would listen to you. And I always thought I was kind of alone. I mean, you know you're not alone. You know in your mind you're not alone, but you feel alone anyway. And so I remember that, and I remember feeling that way and not having anyone to talk to. So I reached out to her, and she was like, you know, let me, let me get back to you. I'm going to put you in touch with on a simmers and let me get back to you. And so I was like, okay, cool. And then next thing I knew, I was being put in touch with so many, connecting with so many other alumni who had all <laughs> been messaging the people who had been calling these teachers out. And it's almost like I thought no one else felt this way. As I said earlier, your mind knows better, but your heart feels one way. You feel alone. And suddenly it's like, I'm not the only one that is thinking about this right now. Everyone that went there is thinking about this right now. And we were like, well, what are we going to do about it? So we started connecting and chatting and figuring out, hey, what? this was not okay. What are we going to do about it? And we've been very busy since. Yeah, I was touching up, brushing up on it all, you know, because I only know so much from my experiences, but I wanted to see how how was it for everyone? And I've been looking at a lot of the postings and interviews mm -hmm. with people from there. One of the ones that really stuck with me was a comment that was given by one student to another that a faculty member 
laughed at and it was aren't you are you mad that your sister has a black butt and you don't and how common were racial derogations and profilings and things like that on like a general basis was it an everyday thing or was it just like small jokes over time basically acs was the first time i'd ever been called the n-word um it was the first place I'd ever been called uh, a gay slur. It was the first time I'd ever been called a flip-flop or like every Asian derogatory term. ACS was the first time I was exposed to racial slurs and just mocking indigenous people. And that was not literally from day one, but pretty much my first, my freshman years when all of this was, I was exposed to all of this. One thing is that the students would say it. Students would say it all the time. They, they would often say it with like the soft R N word, but then they would also say it with a hard R N word. But the thing is that students, okay. Yeah. Students say that, but the problem the thing that really gets me is that it was not just the students. It was the educators. It was the educators on sports trips. It was the educators in the locker room. It was the educators just when they're joking around. It was shocking how easily it rolled off the tongue of my educators. Every slur. One friend told me they came back from a trip to Key West. And they sat down in Bible class. It was the first they had seen this Bible teacher. And the Bible teacher said, welcome back. And then leaned over and whispered in their ear, did you see a lot of Gaysler? Did you see a lot of that word while you were there? And just smiled at them. And that's awful and appalling and disgusting behavior. But... It's also what really gets me, what I find horrifying, is how comfortable they are with the words. How it just, you know, when it rolls off the tongue like it's nothing, and that happens in a public setting, it's because that person says it a lot in private, and probably worse in private. So much so that they were conditioned and comfortable to let it out reflexively like it was nothing. Like it was just a joke. And at ACS, I was taught that basically everyone that wasn't you was susceptible to these jokes, to this mocking, to the stereotypes, to the slurs. It surprises me for a culture that feels so adamantly insist they're persecuted and that they have to be a beacon on the hill, a beacon on a hill of what is right and what is moral and what is good behavior. Once you are within those walls, everyone that is different is fair game for any word. And that's what I was, that's what I was taught. And we all, one of, part of the shame coming out there is that you know you've used those words because your educators said it they taught you it was fine and it takes a long time to break that and realize that's not who I want to be I'm still trying to flip that switch and be who I want to be and that's part of why I wanted to be a part of this movement is because I have to reconcile it was almost 20 years ago and I'm still reconciling it. That's how hard it is to flip that switch. Really gets stuck in you. So recently, Anna Simmers made a post on Facebook about how ABT was planning on reassessing their church as well as how to face the misconducts that have been experienced at the church. The church, the school, how should, as like a whole entity, approach re... What's the word for it? Uh, reform yeah reforming itself the things that we've asked for in our letter they're tangible 
yes, there's a lot of passion behind our arguments, but one thing we focused on is this is not just a forum to say I'm angry. We want to have faith that these faith-based communities can be something that represents minorities as well as it has represented the white community when both demographics are seeking a place to celebrate their faith. And we have been requesting tangible, actionable reform. We want to implement a more diverse administration, one that can have those perspectives that not only strengthen our systems, because we are offering multiple perspectives, the perspective of black educators, perspective of white educators, perspective of Asian educators, but is not only doing that, but can allow students to feel represented and to feel like they're being heard um, and that they have someone they can speak to. That's, that should be the first thing. And the fact that when I was growing up in this community, the only representation, well, one, I didn't, I don't think I had any representation as far as someone that I saw as embodying what I, what I was like and my perspective as a, as an Asian man, as a Filipino man. But I think the only minority I can think of in our faculty, the secondary school faculty was our Spanish teacher. And I think that was it. <laughs> we believe that a more diverse culture is a stronger culture. More diverse community is a stronger one, one that is able to add multiple perspectives, but it's all from the perspective. We, we don't want them to forego their perspective as Christians. Because being Christian is not inseparably tied to being white. Being Christian is not defined as being a white Christian. There are Asian Christians. There are black Christians. There are uh, Pacific Islander Christians. There are Middle Eastern Christians. Christians. Christianity is not an ethnicity. It is a religion. And the idea that having a community that is solely white is not representative of all Christians. And especially as a business, if they want to flourish, I know their attendance is down, both at the church and at the school. If they want to be able to reach everyone who has a desire to know what they are offering, they need to be able to represent everyone who has a desire to know what they're offering and to see that be a part of that community. So first of all, we need a more diverse faculty in the school. Second of all, we need to actually learn about black history beyond what, that Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. Um, there's so much more we need to be learning about. We need to learn about, we need to learn about Black Wall Street. I cannot believe I learned about Black Wall Street and the Tulsa massacre because of an HBO show, which is a wonderful show. But like, why did I not know about this? When I first saw the first episode of Emmy-nominated HBO's Watchmen, I saw this and I was like, what is happening? This is wild. This is insane. And this must just be a part of this fictional universe that they've created for this narrative. I was like, surely this is just, this is fantastical. Americans dropping bombs on other Americans and black Americans from biplanes. And then my wife, ever the journalist, was like, actually, I just looked it up on my phone and this is real. And I was like, what are you talking about? And yeah, we bombed our own people. Why did I not learn about this? I was like, how did, why did I not know this? I learned about Tulsa at like a really young age because my family's all been very pro-gun, especially on the colored side of my family, specifically because of that, because a lot of them are from the South. So yeah, no, is uh, when I was younger, uh, this wasn't when I was staying on my dad's side of the family, but actually when I was staying with my mom's, and the neighborhood we lived in was, uh, I really hate using this term, but that's what we were deemed by, by a local sheriff's department once, was low-income area, 
which is a other for is a phrase for minor high minority population, a lot of black people, a lot of Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, etc. And for some reason, like I don't know why, but it's still a problem to this day. Where like people drive around with their Confederate flag trucks and their Klux flags and all that, and the Klan still like to go around and harass people. It's not as predominant anymore because, well, no one's no one likes it anymore. Even white people begin to go, yeah, no, gays can't be openly racist like that. You got to be a bit more secretive. But um, as they're driving through, blaring a bunch of hate speech nonsense about the South and how it's pride, black people are just outside their house with guns, and they turn around in a parking lot and leave. And that was the moment that made me go, oh, wow, being black is really cool. This is awesome. <laughs> You're telling me it's not all just uh, it's not all just roots where we're just getting whipped. It's like, oh, we can do this now. I, I like this, and that's what kind of sold me on. Like, oh yes, black excellence is so much more than just black business owners. It's it's people of color being able to stand for themselves. Because when people think person of color in a movie, they always think 13 years a slave. People of color going through hardship. Asian American comes to America. Is a working class person until they're like 30, they buy a business, and then they just get old. How come, how come all like action movies are always like, you know, I, you know, Keanu Reeves is cool, John Wick's a cool movie, that one's awesome. However, how come like every movie's always just like, it's always Harrison Ford, it's always uh, Robert Redford, it's always Clint Eastwood, it's never like so many other people exist. Like, that's why, like, I've always viewed it as a way to, of undermining black actors is whenever it's like a black action character, especially like in the 70s and 80s, it was called black exploitation, And they always like made this act so ridiculous over black calling everyone sucker and fool and jive turkey. Like, <laughs> I'm sure people talked like that. I don't think it was every sentence, but I'll take it. I got nothing else to look at. So much of Hollywood is white action heroes they get the cool stuff and it's like oh you want you want something with a black lead well we're gonna do a period piece about how hard <laughs> it was to be black so you're perfect there you go there's your representation then they're saying oh see we're so in touch with you guys it's like well no we live here now i'd like some action heroes something fun because all the white people are having fun and i'm just like i'm your so that's why i love blade blades one of my favorites because of that wesley snipes is awesome that as well as um you can relate to this because you're also filipino uh ongbok with tony ja yes that yes. one really sold it for me it's like ah yes yes this is where it's at but yeah um it's always very interesting seeing how yeah it's like oh Mm-hmm. Would you it's like to be the lead role in a movie about slavery? It's like, I mean, I'd like to be in the next Die Hard, but okay, I'll take it. Hollywood loves to be like, hey, we get you, we get your pain, but it's like that's cool. But what about get my? You don't get my joy. I want, I want fun, and it's like it's because it's still not normalized. It has not been normalized. We have to normalize it through media. We have to normalize being a minority through media and education. And that's part of why we're doing what we're doing because kids, we have to train up our kids to think it's okay to be me. It's okay to be me. And that starts in the movies and that starts in the school. I didn't get either. That's why I fell so deep into watching dips, things that weren't American TV. That's why I enjoyed mm-hmm. watching like 90s anime so much. Cause like, you know, here's something that looks like no one. Here's Voltron. <laughs> Here's uh, here's Transformers. Here's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Give me something I can just enjoy without having to be like, oh wow, here's Power Rangers. Where oh look at that black Power Rangers black guy and he dances, yay. Well, okay. Whenever some whenever someone asks me like, who are your favorite filmmakers? I tell them, Wong Kar Wai, Edward Yang, Batoshi Kon, Sion Sono. These are my favorite filmmakers. And they're like, who are these guys? They might know who Kurosawa is. Now they know who Bong Joon-ho is. Um, and, but they'll be like, who, who are these guys? And I'm, I'm like, well, these are the guys that represent me. This is where I have to go to get something that understands my perspective. So I went there. This actually, I can tie this back. I'm going to tie it back in. Watch this. <laughs> so, um, so I left 
I went to Asian cinema to find something that could represent me, that could understand my perspective and how I feel. If the Christian community in Alaska, if the Christian schools in Alaska want minority kids there, want minority kids to stay in the church when they grow up and they start to enrich their perspectives by seeing this is what other people are like outside of that world, you need to represent their perspective. I left to find Asian cinema in my TV. Uh, I went and put Asian movies into my TV because they had my perspective. If we, if the church, if the school, the Christian private school community cannot represent and understand minority perspectives, then you are not going to keep the minorities. The church will not keep the minorities. They will go to someone who represents their perspective, who understands their perspective, who at least empathizes with their perspective. And thus far, when we have given our perspective that I don't want to be called a flip-flop, I don't want to be called the N-word, I want to be valued the way I look when I have been out in the sun for three hours and I come back baked and tanned, I want to be represented as being okay for passing as half black because I have a curly fro and that's a good thing. I don't need to shave it. I don't need to ask my mom, can you straighten my hair? If you cannot empathize with our perspective, then we're not going to be here. We're going to go somewhere else to someone who won't dismiss us and won't treat us as less than and as the other simply because of the way we were born. Anyways, that's why I watch Asian movies. So, <laughs> yeah. Growing up, um, well, it's, in your case, it was because you watched movies. But for my dad, because he grew up, uh, he at first he lived in the Philippines until he was about 13, and then he moved to America. And so the stuff he went through both in the Philippines because he was black and being in America because he was both black and Filipino uh, kind of created a lot of conceptions about himself as well, about how you have to act a certain way, have to talk a certain way, as well as certain behavioral traits you have to adapt when talking to whether it's law enforcement or just people in general that we look quote unquote proper. In my case, I had a conversation where I was taught here's how you properly talk to people. That way you don't get construed as just another minority. Has everything that you've gone through in any way affected your parenting? Has it made you... Being from a military family, we always had put a big effort into that discipline of how you talk to people, how you walk. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And that, I believe, gave me an, uh, an edge in interactions in that I was able to, I just, I just acted that way. But one thing as a parent with my kids, my kids are, my, my wife is white. And so my kids very much are white passing. So it has, it has been different how I, I've taught them. I don't, I look at them and it's like, you're white passing. And I think you will have a different interaction than someone that isn't. And I think one of the best examples of that is I know I've been a member of some great men's groups for minority men and the leaders of that group, which amazing people, they, they do so much for our community, but they, some of them will teach classes on dressing, how to dress, how to talk, how to walk, how to be accepted in a white man's world because we live in a white man's world. They tell you if you want to get the job, here's the haircut you need to have. Here's what you need to wear. And you can't show tattoos. You can't do this and that. And those standards aren't just, those standards are standards because that's what white people established. And we're adhering to that in order to, uh, to survive. Yeah, uh, growing up, I heard that a lot from both my mom and my dad that I was lucky because I was mixed that I didn't come out looking exactly. Like, they told me, you don't look entirely white but you do good enough to pass. And so I'm very familiar with that. Oh, I, yeah, I'd, let, I'd love to touch on that. My whole childhood was, was going to potlucks and uh, women, uh, mothers coming up to me and being like, you're, they'd, they'd be like, uh, oh, what's the word? Is it guapo? Or whatever, whatever the Tagalog word is for handsome. They would say that and I'd be like, one, I was a kid, so I'd be like, I'm uncomfortable. I want to go play. But they would always follow up, follow that up with, your skin is so light, your your skin is so nice, your skin is so white. 
you look like an actor. And it's because the actors that, that make it big in the Philippines are the ones with, they have really light skin. And that's just, it's really sad. But yeah. yeah, that was always one that really, uh, really always stood out to me, especially when I watched like, um, movie, like, especially Filipino horror movies, like ones about Asuangas and stuff like that. While I didn't go to ABT, uh, being in public school, especially where I went to at Baggage and Bartlett, uh, racial humor, and I really don't like using that phrase because it, it's not really a thing, was very common. I, in my experience, mostly got referred to as, due to the fact that I'm, uh, what I've, the term I've coined is uh, ethnically anomalous, anonymous, because no one can really pinpoint what. So people mm -hmm. either assume either A, I'm Mexican, or B, I'm Middle Eastern. And I got called like terrorist or Afghani a bunch. And that always weirded me out because I am neither of those things. Like, use the right racial slur. I don't, it, it doesn't, that doesn't apply to me. I don't know why you think that would bother me. I mean, it does. One, because you're just being racist. And two, like, that's, doesn't apply to me. Yeah. So I don't, so you know how it is. So Filipinos, for one thing, it, it it's it's a w really weird uh, space to be in as far as these different ethnicities that we had no say in establishing anyway. <laughs> um, we as Filipinos, it's like we're Asian, but we're really close to Pacific Islanders. And then if you ask, when I was a kid, I was like, "Well, we live on an island, right?" So I'm a Pacific Islander, and my uncle was like, "Oh no." we are not Pacific Islanders. We are Asians. And I was like, what is going on there for one thing? You are so aggressive about this. And apparently there's a lot of, a lot of prejudice in some Filipino groups about being profiled as a Pacific Islander, which I don't, I don't understand. But so as a Filipino, you're stuck in this middle ground of you're like, what am I for one thing? Because we were also colonized for 300 years. So I guess we're also Hispanic, not Latin. Um, and then also, I'm half Filipino. You're part Filipino too. So like, nobody knows what I am. And my life growing up was, oh, you're Puerto Rican. Or, oh, I, go, I, I went to DC once. I went to DC and um, it was for when I was in high school, I went to DC. And I remember we were out exiting this leadership conference because we was for a leadership summit thing. And these guys were like, hey, hurry up. We're about to start. And I was like, I don't know you. What's up? It's like the, con the convention's about to start. They got the food out and everything. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? It's like the Italian convention. And I was like, well, okay. Well, I love pasta. So I'm cool with that. But like, <laughs> so I'm Italian when I'm with Italians. I'm Hispanic when I'm with Hispanics. I'm uh, apparently, I've, I've been classified as Pacific Islander before. I'm, I'm of some kind of Middle Eastern descent when when I was at ACS, some people were like, oh, are you part like, are you part Middle Eastern or something? And I'm, I'm, and then my, my wife said, I always thought you were, you were part black too. She's like, I thought you were part black. I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not part black. And I have to establish all the time. It's like, I am not black, but I sometimes uh, pass as part black. I am a Filipino American. Um, so nobody knows what I am, except Filipinos never think I'm Filipino. <laughs> so... That's the one thing is the Filipinos never think I'm Filipino. I always have to tell them. I'm like, Kumusta? And they're like, oh, <laughs> it's like, they're like, oh, uh, yeah, it's always fun. Um, I've gotten Middle Eastern. I've gotten Samoan. I get Samoan a lot. And normally I roll with that one just because like, yeah, sure. I, I, I that's my preferred. I mean, it's the, clo it's the closest to Filipino, I guess. It's kind of, it's in the, it's relatively same area, but yeah, it's very, oh, it's always fun figuring out what people assume you are. Yes. It hit the point in life where rather than view having to explain what I am, because for a long part of my teenage years, it was very much like, oh boy, here I go having to explain my mom's half native my mom and half white and part like a quarter, uh, an eighth native, part white in German, and like a whole bunch of German in my family. And then there's my dad who's half black and half Filipino and having to go through all of that and explain everything and tell them where they're from and explain, oh yeah, my dad's from here. My mom's from there. 
and to the point where it's like, you know, I'm going to turn into like a term of pride. I'm going to go all the way and explain it. Like, yeah, my grandpa's from here. He was from Houston. He's moved. And like my family actually was one of the first, uh, was a uh, part of the very first, uh, you know, people start migrating outward this way and started like trying to dig into like the pioneer history of my family. Cause like, all right, I guess I'll try and like have fun with this. Cause I'm gonna have to explain it for like all my life. I think one aspect of America, one story that I haven't seen a lot of that I want to see more of in movies and in everything is the story of inter being interracial. It, it's, it's like, cause the story of being interracial is, is what I've experienced my whole life of not really knowing where I fit because you have your feet in two worlds, the world that your mom gave you, the world that your dad gave you and feeling like you don't fully belong to either. And one always thinks you're the other. <laughs> it's like I'm with white people and they're like, Oh, you're, you're, you're a minority. And I'm with Asians. They're like, you're not, you're not Asian, <laughs> it's like, but I am I'm both. Also, um, one more thing we're requesting is uh, we've talked about the church and that we want desegregation of the bus system. I don't know if anyone's explained that to you because uh, it, it, it sounds a little confusing at first. There's a separated bus system because I've heard the phrase bus boy before and I was yes. <laughs> confused by it because no one explained it to me. And I was like, well, you tell me that maybe we'll sit in the back of the bus. There's no way they get away with it now. Like I could see how they would find some way to twist like having a specific bus route to like poor neighborhoods. Is that what it is? So basically um, it's not accurate to say that every kid that came on the bus came from a low income neighborhood, but you had a system in which you had parents who went to attended church and would bring their kids with them in the car. They were, they were qualified as drive-in kids. Then you would have kids that would come in on the buses where ABT had all these buses that went all over Anchorage. And these kids would come on the buses and they'd be brought to church. The parents weren't coming to church too, weren't also coming to church. And so they would be brought over there and they would be put qualified as bus kids drive-in kids for sunday school would go to drive-in classes they would go to drive separate classrooms there would be like a gym that would be for the the second part of the day you would go to a, a big gym where they had like a, a youth pastor speak to you and for the drive-in kids the bus kids and the drive-in kids would never mix the bus kids would go to separate classrooms. They would go to a separate gym. They would not play with the drive-in kids. They would not be taught by the pastors that were, being, that were teaching the drive-in kids because they were in different classes. Now, you can be like, well, that doesn't mean that they were segregating people based on their ethnicity. But that's not the way systemic racism works. <laughs> Who can afford to come and bring their kids in their own car? It's middle-class families or upper-class families. The people that sent their kids on the bus system are come from lower-income families. They Maybe their parents are working on the weekend. For whatever reason, they cannot come, but they want their kids to go to church. And those are predominantly lower-income families, black and minority families in black and minority lower-income neighborhoods. And so you would have church services in which you would see all the driving kids, majority white, and then you would see all the bus kids, and they're almost all black or some other minority. But not only that, that would be for the morning, the first half of the day. The second half of the day, the bus kids would go to the main auditorium to hear Jerry Prevost speak. Big auditorium. And they would always boast they had like 3,000 plus attendees on Sunday of service, which now is like 1,500 is what I hear. Um, they would go and they would sit in specific parts of the balcony. They had to stay in those specific parts of the balcony and they would have ushers and other uh, whatever staff that would watch them. The drive-in kids were not 
being placed in the auditorium under the same conditions. We would have a special section. And I remember you would see all the bus kids and then you see all the driving kids in all of our stupid polo shirts <laughs> sitting and we would watch the bus kids and they would make fun of them. They would call them bus boy. And it was a, it was a pejorative. And we would not mingle with them. We would not talk to them. I remember, this is how ingrained I was in that system. When I was still dating my wife, we were feeling really brave one day and we were like, hey, let's go sit with the bus kids. Let's see what that's all about. And we sat with the bus kids for the service. And when it was done, we were like, oh, that was fine. See, it was like, hey, they were cool. We're like, hey, man, nice to meet you. And we were so proud of ourselves that we mingled with the bus kids. But think about that. Why is that a big deal? How messed up is that, that I thought I was so woke. I was so brave and I was pushing the envelope by sitting with kids that just weren't driven in, that were just brought on a bus. They weren't driven in by their parents. And then Jerry Prevo, I remember so much. This was in the early 2000s, so lots of people still had cell phones, had cell phones already. I remember he would always, a phone would ring and if it was on the main floor and it was like an attendant, uh, one of the members, it would be like, oh, ha ha, make sure to put your phone on silent, Bob. But if it was in the balcony, in the bus kid section, or a bus kid was talking, it would be the next five minutes ranting about these bus kids and how disrespectful they are and how lucky they are to be here and how asking the ushers to escort them out and just talking about how kids these days don't have any respect and how yeah, it was just mean. I never forgot what a huge disparity there was between how driving kids were treated and how bus kids were treated. And we want that to stop. We want it to be desegregated. We, they shouldn't be separated. What does that teach? What does that teach these kids? It teaches them they don't really belong. They aren't really like the rest of us. They're different and they should feel different and they should stay in the corner of the balcony. And they're lucky to even be allowed in. And they carry that with them. How's the church respond to everything that you've all said? Uh, you said you sent you and the other Illuminati sent them a letter. Has there been any response to that or feedback? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you can go watch it right now. Um, the current head pastor, Ron Hoffman, um, gave a sermon when we released the, uh, the open platform. And he equated us to some uh, verse that was, uh, do, not, like, do not argue with fools. He said that, don't go on Facebook. He told the congregation not to go on Facebook. And he said that when people are angry, they'll say anything. So it was, it was um, he was prepping the congregation to dismiss us. He was dismissing us. And then kind of called us fools, which is fine. But outside of that dismissal, um, we've also been told that this is hate speech. We've been told that we're doing the work of the devil. <laughs> Um, uh, we've been told that everything, all of this is, these are lies that we're just trying to destroy good people. And that's fine. That's fine. That doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I think the thing that bothers me the most is when people tell us that this hurts them, that they've been nothing but loving and they can't believe that we're saying these things. And then it just tears them up inside. And to see people hurting something they love so much. And that this just pains them to see it. And that they can't believe we don't appreciate all the good that was done. And why don't we think about the good that was done? I think that's probably the thing that bothers me the most. That, that frustrates me the most. Because the good moments... For one thing, the good moments have been reconciled. We've acknowledged them. But the pain, the wrongs, this isn't just painful. This, this is wrong. Those have never been reconciled. 
they've been dismissed. And for someone to say that, that this hurts them, makes it about them, I think you're ignoring, you're ignoring 120 testimonies and more every day. There's a platform that student alumni have created. It's called uh, on Instagram, at a.christian.school, a Christian school. And they're adding new testimonies every day. Other schools are saying we have testimonies too. And for someone to say that this just pains them and to make it about them instead of the pain of all these people who have never been acknowledged, that's frustrating. And I think about when they say that, what about all the good people? I was always nice to you. I was always nice to all these people. What about us? One, I think these people are not the church. They're not the organization. The organization is the thing that we have problems with. The system is what we want to change. We appreciate the good people that care about us. But also, all those nice people, all those good people, where were they? Where were they when I was being called the N-word by my educators? Where were they when I was being called a flip-flop? Where were they when my Hispanic friends were being called beaners or wetbacks? Where were they when my Asian friends were being called Ching Chong or Monkey or Jungle Boy? Where were they when my Bible teacher was telling my friend, did you see a lot of gay slur slurs while you were at Key West? Where were they when, as from one of the testimonies, which has been corroborated by multiple witnesses, when a coach was shoving a student into a locker room, spitting in his face, calling him the N-word? Where were those nice people? Where were those good people? Because they weren't there when we needed them. They were nowhere to be found when we needed them. Or maybe they weren't nice people. I don't know. All I know is there are a lot of people speaking out right now. Their pain is real. And it needs to be acknowledged. Not only that, but I'm so proud of these people that are speaking up because that takes a lot of vulnerability, a lot of courage. But also that they're organizing and saying, we want change. We just want these things to be better. We just want accountability. We want kids that are like, were the way we felt to be valued and to be able to learn about their history and their culture and see educators that represent their perspective. These people that are hurt, they want such amazing positive change, but we've been dismissed. And that confuses me because this could only be good for the church. I'm genuinely surprised by how quick they were in so many statements. Uh, specific, actually, you know, I have, an ex, I have an exact quote with uh, Ron Hoffman during an ADN article. Uh, Jesus is the answer and like him, we are committed to being part of the solution. Do you think his idea of a solution is their idea of a solution or is it one with everyone else in mind? Well, it's great that he says that, but when people, on, on one hand, people are saying we're listening and learning. On the other hand, they're saying we're hate speech and the work of the devil. Um, but so we've been getting a lot of mixed messaging, but whenever we hear listening and learning, it's like, that's great, but what are you actually bringing to the table? And we've asked for very real things, things that students can see, that educators can take action upon, that can implement. And we've been hearing, we're listening and learning. And what does that mean? If nothing changes and you keep saying you're listening and learning, are you really listening and learning? We haven't heard much of anything and the statement by Ron Hoffman, it's like, I appreciate that he's saying we want to change, but it's been 20 years and we really need to see that change. And I've heard a lot that Ron Hoffman is, Ron Hoffman's new. He's, he, he's bringing a different atmosphere. He's, he's going to change so much. And this is going to be a new era. And 
I think one of the things that uh, all some of our detractors haven't really addressed is that Ron Hoffman was there in the old era. He was a coach. He was a part of this. So it's great to hear that they're listening and learning or that it's specifically Ron's words that you quoted, but like, what can you actually do? That's what's important. We need action. Yeah. It's always very interesting seeing there's always like the immediate response. Oh yeah. We want change too. We're recognizing our mistakes, but then there's the follow up of, so what, what is it? What are you going to do? What is the most no, uh, notable ones is so many neighborhoods. Hey, how do we, how do we recognize civil rights movement of people of color? We'll name streets, Martin Luther King. There we go. Everyone. There you go. We're done. We uh, did we'll it. make Rosa. <laughs> we'll, we'll do the Rosa Parks grant. Uh, what else? Uh, we'll recognize George Washington Carver for inventing peanut butter. And we'll put Morgan Freeman as the elderly wise black man in any movie that needs a wise black man. All right, cool. There we go. There we go. We did it, guys. Racism solved. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's never that simple. It's not that simple. Um, and I really do appreciate how all of the alumni, yourself included, have been recognized. I know it's not a simple thing, and we ourselves – have been a part of it because of how normalized it was to us but it can't keep going we all have children and we don't want our children to be that way you shouldn't want yours to be that way if we all have to live in this world i'd like for us to be in it comfortably i mean that's more than fair i feel but yeah it's it irks me it genuinely irks me and you've brought up a lot of tough stuff about the old days do you think that the events both in ABT and Anchorage School District are, are ripple effects of the history of abuse to minorities in the education system of Alaska throughout history. This is not new at all. I think we are in an unprecedented time in history in which we are, as a nation, saying, what do we want to be? going forward? What do we want to be known as going forward? In the middle of a pandemic, people are in the streets saying that we need change, that what's happening isn't okay. That, as you said, we don't want, we don't want statues or Black Lives Matter written on the streets. I mean, that's nice. It's cool. But it's like, I don't want, I don't want words written on streets. I want people not dead on the streets i don't want i want black lives to matter i don't want to be told by a sign that black lives matter i want to see systems in which minorities bipoc individuals are being treated the way white people are treated i don't want black people to be afraid when they get pulled over for a ticket wondering am i going to be shot when i reach for my registration we like to say that well, we don't have that up here in Alaska. Alaska's different. Tell, tell that to the indigenous population, that Alaska's different. We have our own problems. We have a lot of problems. And I think that this is just the time when people are, people are speaking up finally. People are organizing. And because of social media, because of our phones, we have a platform and a voice that we were not given 20 years ago. 20 years ago, when someone called a student the N-word or whatever slur, what is that student going to do? What can they do? They can tell the faculty. The faculty's not going to do anything. They tell their parents. Their parents can tell the faculty. The faculty's not going to do anything. Maybe their parents send them somewhere else. Nothing changes. Today, I have my phone. I can record that. I can screenshot it. I can put it on social media. We have a platform we were never given before to be heard. And I think people are taking advantage of that. We're using it because now I'm not a nobody. I can be heard. I can unite with these other alumni. 
and we can speak, we can be heard. We couldn't do that before. Before you were told you were alone, that it was an isolated incident, that this doesn't happen here. Um, I'm, I mean, you misheard. Or if you misheard, it was just a joke. It, was, it wasn't a big deal. And that's the only time it ever happened. Now I know that that's not true. I know that I'm not alone. I was never alone. How do you and your fellow alumni plan to keep the movement going as well as prevent future misconducts? How do you plan on keeping it all rolling? Well, um, alumni have established the Instagram platform again at a.christian.school. Um, and that is an, a platform that allows BIPOC students and their allies. It allows them, while protecting their anonymity, their identity, allows them to air their grievances, air the specific experiences that they had within private Christian schools. Um, we've obviously started obviously started by giving voice to Anchorage Christian Schools alumni. And but also there's there are Grace Christian Schools alumni on there now. I think it I think it was a brilliant idea to create a platform like that. And it has a lot of potential to give voice to the unheard. And that's the beginning of I don't think we can reform anything until we've given voice to the problems of our past. I don't think we can begin healing until we face the, the problems of our past. But I know we can't fix anything unless we face it first. And so I think the Instagram is an amazing platform for that. I think the petition, the petition is great as well. Uh, the, ADN article was big. There's more and more interviews, more articles coming, and a lot of other, a lot of other um, organizations have approached us, or we've approached, that want to listen to us, want to hear our stories, and give us a platform for that, and are backing us all the way. I can't go into everything that we've discussed but there's a lot more coming and that gives me hope gives me hope because I don't think I can change everyone's mind, but, and I'm not really here to change anyone's mind. My perspective for me personally, I can't speak to everyone in the movement, but as a parent, I think that there is probably some boy, some kid, boy or girl, there's some kid that loves movies like I love movies, that sees the Harrison Fords or the, whatever, the Chris Hemsworths, um, and sees these chiseled, funny, blonde-haired, blue-eyed white heroes and wants to be like them. And is in a very vulnerable time in their life when they're forming their perspective of themselves, their value, their place in society, their identity. If I can let them know that if they go into this environment and they feel like they have to be whiter to be accepted, if I can let them know that that's not true, that you're not alone, that who you are matters, that your voice matters, that you can have your fat lips <laughs> and your curly fro. And that's okay. You can have your dark skin and that's beautiful. If I can let them know they're not alone, they were never alone and they never have to be alone again, then I've done my job. Thank you so much, Joshua. This has been really good talking to you. Really appreciate you for your time and all of this. Uh, it's been a lot for you. It's, I know it's been a lot for me also. But yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you yeah. so much for your time. Thank you. Absolutely, man. Thanks for your time. Man. <laughs>
and the National Endowment of the Humanities. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of the National Endowment of the Humanities or other sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our program and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support our youth voices in Anchorage and help keep our podcast going, you can donate to our organization by going to alaskateenmedia.org and clicking donate. Also on our website, you can learn more about what our organization does, listen to past episodes of our podcast, or find how you can get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Cornelius Nelson. Thank you for listening.